we have uh, Kirby Anderson, who was our church family retreat speaker. He came to speak on worldviews, and this morning uh, he has come to share with us about the Middle East, and hopefully there might be a few little Q&A time at the end, but uh, what is happening in the Middle East and some of the events, current events, some of the things that are happening politically and uh, spiritually as well. He'll be speaking this morning's service, so let's give him a warm welcome as he comes and uh, presents this morning. Well, thank you. And uh, first of all, happy anniversary. Uh, 20 years. Very good. Um, I'm going to, uh, this hour, spend some time talking about what is happening in the Middle East. So we're going to look at it more sort of in a political foreign policy focus. And this is a presentation I've given once before with Pat Zuckerin, who you know. And the second hour, when at the worship service, we'll look at prophecy. And that will be actually a presentation I've never given. But uh, as we go through these, you might find some information that you would like to have. So just as I <clears throat> did this at the family retreat, I'll do it again. And that is I'll send files, the PDF files, to Joe. And then if anybody says, oh, I'd like to use these, steal them, uh, teach them again, whatever, or go over them, that, then you will have that available because we're going to be covering quite a bit in just these uh, two sessions. And I think it will be of interest and hopefully we'll be able to end early enough. You've given me lots of time, so I think we'll be able to do this so that you can ask questions. And feel free, if you want to ask questions as you go along, that is the case. But I wanted to spend just a little bit of time this hour looking at what is already happening in the Middle East, but trying to give a little bit of biblical perspective. So occasionally you can maybe open your Bibles to some verses I'm going to mention. Uh, next hour we will focus a lot of our time and attention, as you'll see in the bulletin, on Ezekiel 38 and 39. So we'll really want to spend even more time in the scriptures there. But I thought we might uh, begin by just kind of talking about the current tensions that we have here in the Middle East. And I know some of you have gone to the Holy Land or gone to the Middle East and you're well aware as you make your trips to Israel what's going on. And as you open up the newspaper, you're well aware of some of the tensions. Let me talk about, for example, what's been happening here in Afghanistan. And that is we've had uh, the death toll rising, not just now for those in the military, but you might remember the news of uh, the burning of the Korans and that uh, was causing all sorts of turmoil as a result of the death of various American soldiers and Afghan citizens. And it just remember, reminds us of what a tinderbox right now the Middle East has become. Uh, certainly, I won't spend a lot of time today talking about Syria. We'll mention it in passing in the second hour, but also a lot of attention has been focused there on what is happening there. You have the Syrian president, Bashar Assad, Assad, who has actually said he would never step down, and you now have had hundreds and hundreds of people that have been killed, just 200 killed just in one of the massacres. Uh, the government's lost control, and again, you can begin to see that some of the tensions that first started in Tunisia, then went to Libya and to Egypt, Egypt have also uh, struck uh, Syria as well. And I won't say a lot about Iran this hour, although we will spend a fair amount of time talking about it next hour when we get into prophecy in particular. But at the same time, when we talk about some of the tensions in the Middle East, you can certainly recognize some of the really great concerns there about the fact that you have a, a number of ayatollahs. Some of us with gray hair remember the first ayatollah in the Islamic Revolution back in the 1970s, and that was Ayatollah Khomeini. And this is Ayatollah Ali Khomeini 
and uh, he has referred to Israel as a cancerous tumor that should be cut and will be cut. And of course you've had uh, not only him, but of course Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who is the president there, which we'll talk more about uh, in the second uh, hour at the worship service about what he believes in terms of being a Shiite Muslim, but actually one of what is called the Twelvers. He believes that there were 12 Imams, but the 12th Imam, who he says is the Mahdi, he believes will return at a time when there is a confrontation, really a global catastrophe. And so you have this madman that actually in some respects believes that nuclear weapons are the way in which to bring that about. And even though he denies the Holocaust, you get the sense that he wants to create another Holocaust with these nuclear weapons. And so we can see that, again, real questions about what is being developed. One of the big questions people have right now is, will Israel attack Iran? Uh, up until this time, we have had some various actions, not militarily, but by cyber warfare. There's been what is known as the Stuxnet uh, superworm that was uh, actually implanted in their computers that caused their nuclear centrifuges to actually get um, out of sync and destroyed the plant. And so we have, in a sense, had military actions, but they've been through cyber warfare. But will they actually go and uh, bomb before uh, Israel uh, will? Will Israel do that, or will the United States or some coalition before Iran gains the bomb? So there are just all those questions sort of in the background. But what I thought I would do, in the interest of the time that we have together, is look at a couple of countries that have really been in the news in the past and certainly have a history in terms of our Bible. And the first of those would be the history and even possibly the future of Libya. Now, when we talk about Libya, you can pull out your Bibles and see that a couple of times, for example, in Matthew 27 and in the book of Acts in particular, you can kind of follow along and see what I'm mentioning here. But when we say Libya, most people say, well, I've never seen Libya in my Bible. Well, that's because actually Cyrene was part of ancient Libya. Once you know that, you realize that actually the current country of Libya that was tied into Cyrene actually is in the Bible. In Matthew 27, for example, we read about Simon of Cyrene. What did he do? Well, he actually carried the cross for Jesus. In Acts 2, we learn about these God-fearing men from that same region that were there in the day of Pentecost. I can go over a little bit further. In Acts 11, we learn that Libyan followers there were actually followers of Christ that actually helped build uh, the church there, really brought the gospel there, and eventually there was an Antioch church. You go to Acts 13, you learn again about Lucius of Cyrene, which again, Cyrene was part of what today we would call modern-day Libya, became one of the leaders in the church there in Antioch, helped send Barnabas and Paul on their missionary journeys. So when you think about this, Actually, this particular country does have some biblical references. We talk about Egypt. The number of times Egypt is mentioned in the Bible is very, very significant. So certainly historically at one time there were Christians in that area. But after um, the time of Muhammad and the establishment of the religion of Islam, the Muslim armies swept through northern Africa. And since that time, this uh, country has been a Muslim country. Um, and we will spend a few times in the next hour talking about how in the Old Testament you also have references to Libya. 
for example, in the Old Testament in Genesis, we have, for example, that it identifies put. And we'll talk more about that during the worship hour. That put is really, if you look in your Bible, actually Libya. And it is described, and there is where the third son of Ham, you say, who was Ham? Well, Ham was the son of Noah. You had Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and actually settled there. We'll look at this uh, next hour at Ezekiel 38, in which it is mentioned they are part of a coalition that in the future will invade and go against Israel. And then you also have a section in Daniel, which we'll refer to a little bit more in the next hour in more detail, about the fact that the Antichrist will have the Libyan people in some kind of submission because, again, you see this in Daniel 11. So when we read about what has been happening in Libya, we can look to the past, we can look to the future, but let me look in the more recent past, because this has been a country that up until recently was run by a man by the name of Muammar Gaddafi, Colonel Gaddafi. He actually took power in 1969 uh, and overthrew the king and established what was called the Libyan Arab Republic. And for those of you that are a little bit older, you might remember that there were a couple of issues. First of all, uh, Libya was identified as uh, having a terrorist attack uh, against the United States. And so then President Ronald Reagan actually had our jets fly and bomb Libya. And uh, if it weren't for a chance encounter, it's possible they would have taken out Muammar Gaddafi. Some of you that are old enough might remember that they flew from England, but because France would not allow them to fly over French airspace, they had to fly around France to then go and bomb Libya and come back. Uh, then, of course, you have one of the things that uh, was one of the great tragedies, the bombing of Pan Am 103. And uh, when Susanna, Suzanne and I were in England, we actually drove by where that uh, plane went down. And, of course, more recently, we've had the protests, which began, interestingly enough, in Tunisia, the so-called Arab Spring, which I think many people have said have turned into kind of an Arab winter now. It has not been good for the Christians, but nevertheless is one that started in Tunisia and spread into Libya, later into Egypt. And um, in some respects, this was a very dangerous threat in this area because Muammar Gaddafi posed a real threat not only because he worked with other Muslims but he also worked with Russia and in the next hour when we talk about this possibility of all of these various nations described in Ezekiel 38 um, you can see how that would come together most people a few decades ago would not have ever predicted that a Russian president would cooperate with a Muslim leader and yet you have seen the connections between, in this case, Vladimir Putin and now deceased um, Muammar Gaddafi, and the connections between Vladimir Putin and Mokmakmorg Ahmadinejad. And so certainly you know, these coalitions that are described in prophecy, which seemed almost unthinkable a generation ago, now make a lot more sense. For those of us concerned about missions, we at Probe Ministries uh, send a lot of our staff to Africa. And I'll pick just one country where we were recently in Uganda. It is amazing the number of mosques that have been established in Uganda with the money from Muammar Gaddafi. So not only was he a terrorist threat, I think he has been a major threat to the advancement of the gospel. And Christians in those countries, not just Uganda, but I'm just picking that one. We've been in Liberia and many other countries as well. Um, 
certainly have been negatively affected because he has used his oil money to establish mosques and sometimes the largest building in many of these African towns and villages is the mosque established by Muammar Gaddafi. So some people said, well, what good is it that we got rid of him because now we'll have another Muslim leadership there? And we may. I'll talk to that in just a minute. But one advantage is, is that Christian missionaries won't have to contend with the fact that he was planting mosques all over Africa and really advancing the spread of Islam at a time when certainly one of the most significant areas of growth for the Christian religion has been in Africa. But I see a real tension and conflict coming up in the future. Well, let me talk about this idea of the Arab Spring. You know, we, as we looked at our newspapers and watched television, we heard a lot about the so-called Arab Spring. But I think that has also resulted in what you might call a Christian winter. And I say that because in some respects, as the Muslims have taken, various Muslim leaders have taken over from the military, both in, say, Libya and in Egypt and other places, sometimes what has happened is the Christians are the ones that have suffered. Not that Christians always had the best time in Libya or Egypt under a dictator, but they certainly did better than, as we're going to talk about in just a minute, under groups like, say, the Muslim Brotherhood or even some of the influence of Al-Qaeda in Libya. And so one of the action points for us today is to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ for Africa and what is happening there as we'll be talking about this. And I want to give you some action points along the way. But certainly, if as we finish this first Sunday school hour, you will see the need for us to really pray for believers because of what they've gone through. Some people have had the hope, our Secretary of State being one of those, that actually believes that uh, this Arab Spring will turn into a democracy and that we'll have democracy flourishing in Libya. And while I think that's a theoretical possibility, I think the reality is is that even if some of those people that were protesting and fighting against Muammar Gaddafi had power, I think that behind the scenes you're going to have some very radical Muslim forces there that are going to really change that as well. And I, I think I might as well try to explain that because as we talk about what is happening in the Middle East, there are some that actually believe that uh, the re- revolts and the protests and these kinds of things are going to lead to some kind of democracy. And the problem with that is, is that I think it's very hard to grow democracy on a Muslim soil. And the reason for that is that democracy is really based upon a number of factors, aren't they? You know, equal vote, you know, one person, one vote, equal status in the, before the law. And yet if you take a strict interpretation of the Quran or the Hadith, some of the various religious books of Islam, hate to say this, ladies, but in the Muslim world, a man's testimony is worth more than a female's testimony. A woman's testimony is only worth half of a man's. And so right off the bat, you have some difficulties there in terms of human rights. Also, in many of these countries that have implemented Sharia law, um, an infidel's rights are virtually non-existent. But even the so-called people of the book, that would be Jews and Christians, they have to live under what is called dimitude 
so their values and their rights are not as strong and as significant as Muslims. So as much as we would like to grow democracies in the Middle East, it has been very, very difficult. And the few places where we've had something that looks like a democracy, perhaps Turkey would be the best example of that. Uh, Turkey was a Muslim country as a Muslim country, and at one time might have even been the first Muslim country to be part of the European Union. But in some ways, the reason it was even somewhat democratic is because the previous uh, leader, Ataturk, actually tried to make it a more secular nation. That has changed, as we'll talk about a little bit later in the second hour. But again, it's possible, theoretically, to have a democracy grow in Muslim soil, but very, very difficult for many of the reasons I've just mentioned. Also, well, here's a good example. Uh, many of those that practice Sharia do not allow a woman to vote. They value the testimony of a man over a woman and do not guarantee some of those rights. So again, what happens oftentimes is the leaders can point to verses in the Quran to justify their actions. And so it's very difficult to have some of those democratic values. So that's just a little bit in what is happening in Libya. And certainly we should pray for believers in Libya. But there are even more believers in Egypt. And Egypt has a very long history, certainly in the scriptures. But before we get to that, let's give us some of the recent history that helps us understand that. In 1952, actually, you have the beginning of what has existed until just this last year, some kind of military dictatorship in a country that had Muslim background. And in 1952, Gamble Abner Nasser took power and became president ultimately in 1956. Those of you that are a little bit older might remember back in 1956 where he actually nationalized the Suez Canal and that was a concern as to whether or not that would affect our economies. Today about 8% of all the oil that we receive goes through the Suez Canal. So certainly even today a disruption there could affect us in some significant ways. If you think gas prices are high right here in Seattle, just wait till you cut off about 8% of the oil that we need. You can see what that would do very quickly. Uh, but nevertheless, it is interesting that he actually was one of those individuals that was very instrumental in what came to be known as the 1967 Six-Day War. Now, this was a war that was brought by him and a number of other uh, coalitions against Israel. It only lasted six days. Israel was victorious and in the process was able to gain uh, the Sinai Peninsula. But shortly after the war, actually just a day or two, he died. And so he was then succeeded by another military leader by the name of Anwar Sadat. Now, interestingly enough, Nasser had built a very close relationship with the Soviet Union. And this was a real concern for the presidents at that time. But then, interestingly enough, Anwar Sadat began to do some things very different and moved his alliance from the Soviet Union to the United States. We'll fast forward from the 1967 Six-Day War to the 1973 War, which is oftentimes referred to as the Yom Kippur War. Again, launched a surprise attack against Israel. And in this case, again, Israel was successful. But interestingly enough, even though Sadat had, was defeated militarily, it was a political victory for him because he was seen as fighting against Israel. And so he really, in a sense, had great power and favor among the Egyptian people. 
But instead of using that to launch another war against Israel, he did just the opposite. And in 1977, actually flew to Jerusalem and spoke in the Israeli Knesset. And that was, in a sense, providing legitimacy for the first time for Israel. Because most of these nations surrounding the nation of Israel wanted to drive it into the sea. And so this is the first time in which you had kind of a breach of this idea of Arab states wanting to destroy Israel. A few years later, um, you have under President Jimmy Carter what are referred to as the Camp David Peace Accords. And there's a picture there of Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat uh, actually signing a peace treaty, which to this day still exists between Egypt and Israel. The Arab League rejected what he did, and eventually, as you may know, there was a military um, individual that actually came up to Anwar Sadat in 1981 and assassinated him because he had actually signed that peace treaty. And so he was then succeeded by another military leader, and his name is Hosni Mubarak, who has been the leader until most recently when he is depo was deposed. He became the president and the commander-in-chief. The big question now is who's going to be the leader in the future? There have been three different elections for the parliament in Egypt. And as we begin to look at those who have gained power, uh, we'll talk a little bit in just a minute about the Muslim Brotherhood, but some people have begun to identify possible leaders in Egypt. One would be Mohammed al-Baradai, who was born in Egypt and actually educated both in Egypt and in America. Won the Nobel Peace Prize because of his work with the International Atomic Energy Agency. And although he's no friend of ours, he's not seen as radical enough for some of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, some others that have talked about Musa, Amar Mohammed Musa, born in Egypt, earned a law degree from Cairo, served as a UN ambassador, uh, could be a possible leader, but again, some of the radicals in the parliament now are even rejecting people that we would not feel comfortable with, which I think shows you how um, particularly radical this has actually become. If you want to kind of understand what is happening in Egypt, you can look at the Pew Research poll. And although it did point out in the poll that some people did hope for a democracy, you have to sort of get into the minds of what an Egyptian means by democracy. Because they found that 95% of Egyptians thought that religion should play a very significant role in politics. And when we say religion, we're not talking about Christianity, right? Uh, certainly that's the case. 84% favor the death penalty for people who leave the Muslim faith. Uh, 77 percent think thieves should have their hands cut off. 54 percent believe suicide bombings that kill civilians can be justified. And it shows you how radical this country is becoming in the midst of all that takes place. Which brings me to another group that I thought maybe for just a few minutes we might talk about, and that is the group known as the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, when you hear some of the press reports, uh, you would think that they aren't as dangerous as I think you're going to find out in just a minute. Matter of fact, one of the members of the Obama administration recently said, we do not really think that this is a radical group. And after hearing his testimony, you'd think that they were like the Chamber of Commerce of Cairo. And so if you'll allow me to tell you the rest of the story, let's talk a little bit about that. First of all, who are the Muslim Brotherhood? Well, they were started back in 1928 when the Egyptians were very angered about the fact that uh, the so what today we call Saudi Arabia, but the Arabian Peninsula cooperated with the uh, dismantling of the Ottoman Empire. 
after World War One, you had something very different because prior to that, the Ottoman Empire, run out of Turkey, had what is known as a caliphate. It was a, a loose affiliation of various Muslim states. And after this time, they wanted to reestablish this idea of a caliphate. And so, this the motto at that time for uh, the Muslim Brotherhood is Al Islam Huwa Al Har, which means Islam is the solution. Now, when we talk about the Muslim Brotherhood, sometimes you will see this particular picture here. They will carry that. You'll see people in the Muslim Brotherhood, they'll dress in green. And it uh, doesn't necessarily mean they're Seahawk fans, okay? You know, that, but they dress in green and they will wear this. And it has these two swords. On the top part there, on the picture there, is the Quran. But underneath in the yellow there is the word prepare the Arab word, Arabic word prepare. And you go, well, that's good, you know, I believe prepare, you know. Boy Scouts, be prepared. Well, it so happens here that the word prepare really is based upon Surah 8 in the Quran, which says, prepare against them as you are able of force and cavalry to terrorize Allah's enemy and yours. So even in their symbol, they are quoting back, if you will, to the Quran, which helps you understand that even though they portray themselves as a relatively peaceful Muslim group, uh, the very core of the organization goes back to a desire to find any means possible to reestablish a theocratic, Islamic theocratic or caliphate in that region. Matter of fact, the motto, you can do a Google search, just go on the internet, type in, you know, Muslim Brotherhood, you can read this. Allah is our objective, the Prophet is our leader, Quran is our law, Jihad is our way, dying in the way of Allah is our highest hope. And that is the motto of the Muslim Brotherhood. And they have now a plurality of seats in the parliament. So it doesn't take a lot of guessing to imagine what that's going to look like. Matter of fact, the founder, uh, Hassan Albana, is one of the founders. And again, uh, he and then one of his disciples later, especially one of his disciples, was sort of the intellectual mentor for a man by the name of Osama bin Laden, who, of course, brought a terrorist attack against the United States. But at the same time, you have people in this administration, in the State Department, saying they're not like um, Al-Qaeda, they're not like Hamas or Hezbollah or some of the others, Islamic Jihad. And I think that is true because they have come to conclude that there are two kinds of Jihad. One Jihad is a violent Jihad which means that I am engaged in a military action against others. But another is the concept of a peaceful jihad. Now, I do not read Arabic, but I, as a talk show host, have people on my program that do read Arabic. And in some of the more recent uh, communiques by the Muslim Brotherhood, they actually have said some very interesting things. They said, for example, it is up to the Muslim leadership to assess the situation before deciding the appropriate type of jihad. They said Muslims may find that jihad through persuasion or peaceful resistance is the best and most effective method. So I would say that it is true that the Muslim Brotherhood do not look as violent as many of the other Muslim groups because they believe that they can actually use the parliament 
and peaceful kinds of political persuasion to bring about that change. So persuasive kind of jihad seems to be the mode of operation both in Egypt and in Tunisia. Very different, for example, than what we would identify as violent jihad, which you see with, say, Hamas or Al-Qaeda. Does that make sense to you? And so when you hear people in the news, even in the State Department, saying, you know, we're less concerned about violence from, say, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, that is a true statement. But it's misleading, isn't it? Because you can see what their ultimate goal is. And that is, if we can bring about the changes we need to bring about through parliamentary procedures, through the political process, through the ballot, we'll achieve the same end as some of those violent people that actually be are targeted by the government. The top leader of the Muslim Brotherhood right now, interesting enough, warned that any cuts in U.S. aid to Egypt could affect the country's peace treaty with Israel. And some people have wondered, as we'll talk about in the next hour, when we look at Ezekiel 38, um, Egypt does not mention per se there. I'm going to give you an explanation for why that might be. But you've had some people like Joel Rosenberg, if you've ever read any of his book, Epicenter or Inside the Revolution or certainly all his fiction books, He's got a book coming out in the next couple of months, which I've already read because I got a pre-publication of it called Implosion. He says, well, maybe that means that the peace treaty will continue. But interestingly, if a large majority of Egyptians right now are opposed to U.S. aid, and you know what? Our country is as well. Uh, we're having trouble balancing our budget, aren't we? And the second, uh, the, the country that receives the most amount of foreign aid is what? Israel. But number two is Egypt. And you could see very easily how some people would say, look at what has happened in Egypt. Maybe we will no longer support them, or maybe they will no longer want to receive aid from us. So we'll have to see how that plays itself out in terms of the issue of Egypt. But I thought as a prayer target for just a minute before I talk about a few other issues and then open up for your questions, I might talk about the importance of prayer. You know, we are told, in, uh, for those of you who want to take some notes, you might put down Psalm 122, that we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And certainly I would hope that uh, as you are praying for missionaries around the world, you might even pray for what is happening in the Middle East right now. Also to pray, as we're always encouraged to do, to pray for those in leadership. In 1 Timothy 2, we're to pray for those in authority over us, and that would be to pray for our president, and certainly to pray for other individuals in the cabinet, in the military. And as we think of Egypt in particular, uh, pray for the two and a half million persecuted Christians in Egypt. Now, most of the Christians there are Coptic Christians, uh, which are a little bit different, but I've met enough Coptic Christians, interestingly enough, very close to where the old probe headquarters are. Matter of fact, not even a half a mile from the old probe headquarters is a Coptic church. So we kind of would run into some of them. Uh, and certainly a good number of them probably are believers as they go to church. And certainly they have been harassed and intimidated. You may have heard uh, what happened just a year ago in which uh, they had the bombings of Saints uh, Church in Alexandria during New Year's Eve. And so this is a time in which there's a tremendous amount of persecution of Christians. Just before I open up for some questions, let's talk briefly about some other enemies of Israel because uh, Israel is surrounded by enemies and certainly one of those that I've alluded to is the enemy Hamas. 
and Hamas as a military coalition that uh, was developed over a number of years and certainly it is now taken over what is called the Gaza Strip. And so they have been launching all sorts of rockets and things and mortar shells into Israel. And so it was one of the greatest uh, barrages that they've had. And so uh, Israel attacked. And it's always interesting in terms of world opinion. Hamas can fire and the Gaza Strip can fire a rocket after rocket into Israel. Silence. As soon as Israel reacts, then, of course, they're under the censure of uh, various individuals. And then you also have the Palestinian issue as well. Uh, this fall, the United Nations was supposed to vote to establish a two-state solution. They postponed that, but there has been a real pressure to have Israel continue to give up land for peace. It already gave up, of course, the Gaza Strip, but to give up what is oftentimes referred to as the West Bank. And this would then give international sanction to a Palestinian state and, in a sense, move Israel back to its pre-1967 borders. Now, I know a few of you have actually had a tour of Israel, and you can recognize that at its narrowest point, there's only a few miles. I mean, like the distance between here and downtown Seattle, can you imagine trying to defend a country that's only that wide? And this is why, of course, you have uh, various individuals that have been in leadership over these years that have simply not wanted to do that as well. And before I open it up for questions, though, I thought I might uh, mention that when we talk about these conflicts that are taking place here in Israel and the Middle East, a lot of them go all the way back to what we call family feuds. Now, I'm not talking about the TV program, Family Feuds, but uh, these are family feuds which are kind of intriguing if you think about that. Because if you want to talk about the conflict, for example, between um, the Muslim world and the Jewish world, Really, that goes back to the mothers of Abraham, uh, mothers actually of uh, Isaac and Ishmael. But, you know, you have Sarah and Hagar and the so-called Hagarines. Many people have identified them as the Egyptians. Uh, then you have the sons, Isaac and Ishmael and the Ishmaelites. Many people have identified them as uh, many of the Arab uh, Muslims as well. Then you have Jacob and Esau. Esau then later on goes to Edom. And then you have the Edomites and then you have the Idumeans. And today, most people would say that they would be identified as the Palestinians. And then you have uh, some of the Ammonites, and those are those that so actually were in the Jordan area. And then later on, you have some of the distant relatives. Remember the Amalekites? Remember in Exodus, uh, when the children of Israel are wandering in the wilderness, and uh, then they're attacked by the Amalekites? Remember that? And then there's a battle. And what happens? Moses raises his hand, you know, and as he raises his hand, what happens? Well, the Israelites prevail. But eventually, if I hold my hand up long enough, I've got to put it back down. When his hand went down, then the uh, uh, Malachites uh, begin to prevail. And so then later we run into them in First uh, Samuel 15, for example, where Saul is told by Samuel to go out and kill the Amalekites. And then you have some of the leftovers of the Amalekites, Haman, wanting to destroy all of the Jews and Esther. And it's kind of intriguing because if you think about it, uh, most of our family feuds actually go all the way back to the book of Genesis. I'll go through that real quickly in case you had never seen that before, because when we talk about Jacob and Esau, you have Rebecca giving birth to two twins, of course, Esau and Jacob. Uh, then they take different paths. God tells Jacob that he is to dwell in the land where his father was a stranger. But he tells Esau that he's going to go to the land of the, leave the land of the promise and go to Mount Seir. 
Now, if you've never been to the Middle East, you might say, well, where is this? Mount Seir. Um, and I'll go through that a little bit in just a minute to point out that that is actually found in a place today which we would call Petra. And so when you look at Esau's grandchildren and descendants, you can see that first you have that battle, as I mentioned in Genesis 36, with the Amalekites. Then later on you have, of course, Agag in 1 Samuel 15. You have Haman in Esther 3. So it is amazing as you begin to follow all the descendants of Esau. Esau and Jacob, in a sense, are always fighting. And um, actually, we see that they actually go to the land of Seir. Uh, As a matter of fact, Isaac says that he is to live by the sword. And as you look at the conflict that has always been taking place between uh, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, you recognize that this battle has continued time and time again. And this place called Seir actually in the Greek was known as Petra, comes from the uh, word Batra. And for some of you kids that might remember Indiana Jones and what? Remember that? Uh, one of the Indiana Jones, when they go to actually Petra, that's where they're going to find the chalice of the communion. And this was actually cut into those stone walls. And um, it is a almost totally protected fortress. Uh, well, you see Indiana Jones, he walks through there and later he rides out in his horse. And it was easy to protect because they could actually be up on those walls and anyone that came in to try to take over that city of Petra could be easily defended. And it was something that uh, gives us a, per, a perspective of what happened then. And as we'll look at uh, in the next hour, what I think is going to happen in the future. Because later on it was inhabited by what were called the Nabataeans. And they were able to survive all sorts of attacks from the Greeks, but eventually they were conquered by the Romans, and it's been kind of a deserted place, fulfilling one of the prophecies by Isaiah that said it would be a place inhabited by owls and crows and wild animals. Uh, But interestingly enough, just prior to the New Testament times, the Edomites um, actually were taken uh, over and kind of morphed into what you call the Idumeans. And so as a result, the Idumeans were conquered by the Jews and forced to be circumcised. And perhaps the most famous in the Bible, Idumean, is a man by the name of Herod the Great. And if you think about that, Herod the Great here, he was an evil man. And what did he try to do? He tried to not only destroy the Jews, but he's the one that ordered that any child under the age of two should be killed because he was trying to kill off the Messiah. Then he was replaced by another Idumean, and he was Herod Antipas, and he's the one that killed John the Baptist. Have you seen a trend here? I mean, the battle, if you will, between Jacob and Esau continues even into the New Testament times. And so today, people have said, well, where are the descendants of Esau? And I took this from the uh, article that was in the Jerusalem Post. And the Jerusalem Post headline said, As for the Palestinians, leading Orthodox Jewish Bible scholars believe they are the descendants of Amalek, the grandson of Esau. And if that's true, then it means, as I said before, that the Palestinians are the descendants of the house of Esau. So we see, you know, Jacob and Esau had become two nations. They fought against each other, and uh, the battle continues to this very day. 
But let me open up for some questions. I wanted to race through the last part of that so that you could ask me any question you want. But if you say, wait a minute, you went through that pretty quickly. First of all, I'm going to give you a PDF file so you can go through it in your leisure. Second of all, if you're looking for a book or two that maybe you'd like to read about this, I wanted to recommend a few. First of all, Mark Hitchcock, he's a good friend of ours. He graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, has his doctorate, just written this book called Middle East Burning. And some of what I'll share next hour comes from that. Ron Rhodes is also a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, got his doctorate there as well, and he wrote this book about northern storm rising. So a lot of what we'll talk about in the next hour out of Ezekiel 38 and 39 can be found in one of those two books. Both of them, I believe, are published by Harvest House, so it should be fairly easy to find. And I mentioned Joel Rosenberg's book. If you wanted to read one of his nonfiction books, uh, that book Epicenter really gives you a lot of history of Egypt and Libya and Syria. Syria, also the fact that Israel is the very epicenter of the world even to this day, and this book is published by Tyndale. And so those are some books that you might want to look at if you'd like to read a little bit more. But Joe's going to stand up, and I will be glad if somebody wants to ask me Straight a question, hand, or you can mic. disagree with me, or you can take uh, add some to what I've done in terms of commentary. But this in the first hour is to give you a little bit of a sense of what's happening in the Middle East today. Next hour, we're going to look at what I believe is going to happen in the future. Yes. Yeah, Kirby, uh, in Deuteronomy 33, at the closure of, of the book of Deuteronomy, there's reference to treasures in the sand, Zebulun and Asher. Do you see any correlation between the recent discoveries of, in Israel of natural gas, oil, shale oil, to that passage? And might that relate to Ezekiel 38 and 39? Boy, what a great setup for the next hour, because I actually have a slide that talks about the gas that is there. $150 billion and counting of of uh, natural gas alone that the Zion Gas um, Organization has found. And so one of the arguments that people might make is that why would you have this Russian coalition with Muslims come in and destroy Israel? Well, point number one is I think Muslims have always wanted to destroy Israel because they believe that that was their land and they want to remove uh, Israel from the face of the earth. But a second reason is, is that we now know there are tremendous resources in Israel Israel, which nobody would have guessed. I mean, you know, after 70 AD, uh, you had nomads and Bedouins that lived there, but nobody thought that Israel had much wealth. And even when they discovered oil in Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran and places like that, nobody still thought there was much oil in Israel, which is probably the case, although we don't know for sure. But it does seem like we have lots of natural gas, and I think that could be another very good reason why you would have the northern storm rising, why the Northern Coalition might be coming down, especially with scarce resources uh, that might uh, be another justification. But your point is actually in one of the slides you're going to get to see next hour. So you've set me up perfectly. I couldn't do any better than that, you know. Um, Kirby, I wanted to know, what do you think about, uh, do we still give money to um, Russia? 
I mean, do we still give them aid like we had all, all over all these years before their economy? Yes, and fell? I think indirectly we do give some money to Russia, but very, very little in terms of uh, you know foreign aid. But you know, there is one thing we've learned with every survey that's ever been done: when people say cutting off, uh, kind of cutting the budget, the first thing they want to cut is foreign aid, and we have been giving foreign aid to I think it's last time I counted 76 different countries. But that's deceptive because it's sort of like this: you know, the the bottom few are mostly or you could do it this way, however you want to look at it, uh, the top couple, like Israel, like Egypt, and one or two others, get the lion's share. Some of the others are very small amounts. But we do have some money that goes to Russia, but very insignificant amounts. What do you think drives that, um, them wanting to have those kind of relationships um, with all the, the Muslim countries that you mentioned? I mean, is that basically still that they have a, a distrust, hatred, don't want to be positioned always against the United States just in case there's a, you know, we go back to a Cold War type relationship right. or whatever? Yeah, and I think one of the reasons we, and I won't get into foreign policy that much, but I think one of the reasons you've had foreign aid, very realistically, is because we've always thought that we could buy a favor. And um, also, I think there's another reason, earmarks. I mean, just as we've had earmarks that maybe even some of your senators, your member of Congress, would have so that they can build a bridge or a dam or a road in, say, Washington, so also some people looking for foreign policy have added earmarks because they wanted to curry favor or have something established. In some cases, they've been military bases. I mean, in some respects, the, mega, the most significant ways in which we've benefited other economies, uh, think South Korea, Germany, with you know our uh, military bases there up until recently Saudi Arabia and other places is just by having the military there there has been all sorts of indirect military aid which is like foreign aid but it's in some cases been uh, an attempt to try to buy favor from individuals and uh, do that in a way that hasn't worked very well as you like to as uh, Dr. Phil likes to say look at Egypt how's that working for you not working very well is it Let's take another hill right there. Can you just explain in a general sense uh, um, the causes of, as far as the uprisings in Libya and Tunisia and and, uh, Egypt and now Syria? You you watch the news and they almost make it seem it's like the Americans fighting against the British again. (laughs) You know, it's almost like the the cause for democracy. But what, what really caused people to rise up and want to overthrow the governments in that Sure. And I think it's a really good question because uh, let me just take Egypt as a good example because I know more about that one. Uh, I would have to say that part of that came from watching what had happened in Tunisia and thinking that maybe this would be a strategic time to throw off the military dictatorship that had existed for many years. So that was part, a desire for freedom. It wasn't necessarily a desire for democracy, it was a desire to be free from the military. In a in addition to that, you had um, rampant unemployment. I mean, if you think we have unemployment figures here that are devastating, especially for those under the age of 30, you go to Egypt and you can't even imagine the number that had no visible means of support. Uh, so there were certainly economic issues. So I think those were very real significant issues. And even the desire for freedom, there may have been some that were hoping for some kind of democracy, but many others just wanted to rid themselves of the military. Well, once that got going, then you have then the various groups, Islamic Jihad and the Muslim Brotherhood, saying, well, we'll get part of this as well, and this is a way in which we can transform the country. So I think in some respects there were probably some that would desire a democracy, but others that just simply wanted to have an Islamic theocracy. But in most cases, the initial people that were willing to put themselves on the line were those that had very little to lose. 
because after all they had no job they had no prospect for the future and so they were out there a little bit maybe even like uh, some of the Occupy group you know that were then sometimes co-opted by others that came in just as you saw a little of that here in the United States that happened in a very significant way in Egypt so I think that's probably the best explanation one question Joe. I have is, uh, in the past couple of months, uh, Israel has been threatening to bomb Iran in a preemptive strike. Uh, first question is, uh, is uh, how, does preemptive, how does a preemptive strike fit into just war theory, yeah. or does it? And number two, how should Christians respond when we're asked, well, what do you think about that if it were to happen? You know, somebody asks us, well, what do you think about Israel bombing Iran for their centrifuges? Is that right or wrong or what? Sure, very good. Well, if I can give a short commercial you remember our website probe.org and one of our staff members now has actually written his thesis on for just war and so we got talking about that the other day and his argument is is that just war usually does not have the idea of preemption but it doesn't disavow it either because especially as we entered into the nuclear age you couldn't wait for somebody to bring troops across your border before then you would be justified in defending because in a sense preemption is uh, sort of become sort of a subset which is very controversial I mean Christians could honestly have uh, real disagreements about whether or not a preempt uh, some kind of preemptive strike would be justifiable but that certainly was at least part of our justification for desert storm whether you agree with it or not that was at least part of the justification because of the thought that Saddam Hussein had military uh, nuclear weapons and it could be the justification for Israel but at the same time you know how do you justify all that I think it's going to be difficult and there is probably all the evidence in the world that if Israel does attack in one way or other whether through cyber warfare or through bombing um, that they will encounter probably the greatest censure uh, that they have ever seen so how do we talk about that from a Christian point of view well we've got some articles on our website if you want to read a little bit more about this idea of just war and a Christian perspective but I guess we're supposed to end because you told me I'm supposed to end at 20 after and I'm a talk show host so I know how to end on time all right <laughs> well if you have uh, additional questions you can ask Kirby and want to uh, just uh, ask you extend your uh, hospitality towards him and his wife is here she's always very gracious and we appreciate their uh, time so let's bow in a word of prayer and we'll prepare our hearts for worship this morning our god in heaven we give you thanks and father as the news constantly comes streaming in over television and newspapers about what is happening in the middle east the turmoil that has occurred father we know and trust that you are always in control and we desire oh father to understand the events around us father we pray that you would grant to us a greater understanding and how your scriptures speak to the issues at hand so father i pray that you would prepare us now as we come together in worship of you in jesus name amen